Working Together podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. In this episode, I have an engrossing conversation with a fellow by the name of Chris Corrigan, who works with organizations, communities, and teams to address strategic challenges using dialogic approaches to decision-making. Chris calls himself, quote, a process artist, a teacher, and a facilitator of social technologies for face-to-face conversation in the service of emergence. His business is, quote, supporting invitation, the invitation to collaborate, to organize, to find one another, and make a difference in our communities, organizations, and lives. And in our talk, Chris tells me about the art of hosting conversations that matter, the ancient significance of coming to a campfire to share stories, our one option for the challenges that face us in the future, and so much more. You'll walk away from this talk with an appreciation for the art of working together. I hope you enjoy it. First of all, Chris, uh, I'd really, yeah, I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today uh, mm-hmm. on the Working Together podcast. And, um, you know, your work is very interesting. I, uh, I've been poking around on your webpage for a while, uh, looking at the resources that you have up there and some of the videos that you have and the numerous blog posts that you've written. You seem to have been blogging for, for quite some time, which is, uh, impressive to say the least. So, uh, so that's great. Um, and kind of how I usually like to start off many of the interviews that I do with people is to get a sense from you, um, your backstory, your history, what, what brings you to the work that you're doing, uh, as, as a, you know, facilitator basically. Right. But, um, if I'm pigeonholing you too much with that term, just, you know, please, you know, please, uh, please feel free to re-describe. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'd love to hear kind of what led you to now. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, I, uh, I did a degree in uh, Native Studies and Management and Economic Development uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. Hmm. And my first job was working for a national Native organization called the National Association of Friendship Centers, which is uh, an organization that represents about 120 urban Aboriginal social development organizations across the country in different cities and towns. And my job was as a policy analyst. And at the time, I was sort of fresh out of school and pretty pretty smart. And so the federal government would develop these 
policy papers and different ideas and send them over to us for comment and we would, you know, analyze them and talk about how they would affect our membership and send them back to the federal government and often things would happen. We would create new programs or, or um, new policies and uh, so it was, it was all good and that was what my job was mostly. And then one day I got a, uh, a discussion paper that came across my desk and it seemed that Health Canada was going to create an Aboriginal family violence initiative and uh, what did we have to say about that? And, and I, I was kind of struck at the time by the fact that I, I couldn't actually answer that out of my own experience. And so I started phoning around to people in uh, different places across the country in our membership and asking them, you know, if, if there was a federal and Aboriginal family violence initiative, what, what would you do? How would it affect you? How would you use it for your clients? And I just started getting a ton of stories back. Mm. And so I just wrote all these stories up and I sent them into the federal government. And I said, well, this is what our people would do. with it." And they were so uh, moved by the stories that were shared that they said, if we give you guys some money, can you host a meeting with some of these people, bring them to Ottawa and we could sit down and, and just talk for a day or so about, you know, mm. planning an initiative with mm -hmm. all of these folks. And so, sure, no problem. I did. And I hadn't really done much facilitation stuff. I'd, I'm a little bit interested in process uh, work, and mm. but I hadn't really done a lot of that. And <clears throat> so I went to, uh, I talked to one of our elders. We had elders on staff at that time. And I said to him, oh, I'm going to leave this meeting. And what do I need to know? And he said, uh, well, the creator gave us two, two, two gifts. It gave us circle and story. Mm. And then he just went back to work. And that was my, that was my facilitation <laughs> training. So I, <laughs> so I got, I, you know, the day of the meeting came and everybody had booked their travel and they were all arriving. And so I set the, you know, I went to, it was a hotel, some hotel downtown Ottawa and we had a meeting room and, and, you know, I walked in there and it was set up like a hollow square and with tables and stuff. And, mm -hmm. and I just had, I just had Bruce's uh, words in my mind. He'd also given me an eagle feather to use as a talking piece. And of course I've been in circles. That's how we worked in our organization. So, but, but I had his, his voice in my mind and I looked at this room and he said, circle and story and circle and story. And so mm. I, I got rid of the tables and I set it up in a circle and, and everybody arrived There's probably two dozen people or so there, a bunch from the federal government and a mm -hmm. bunch from friendship centers. And we, you know, I passed the, uh, the feather around and I said, what, you know, um, what are your stories of, of working with family violence? And, you know, it was incredibly moving, right? It took most of the morning for that circle. And then wow. and we had lunch together. And then in the afternoon, uh, I passed it around again and said, so what could we do if we could had a program that would address these? And that went around. And, and at the end of the day, you know, like every single person in that room had a story. Every, it doesn't matter whether you work for the federal government or friendship centers. Everybody had a story. And everybody had an idea, and hmm. um, and and the feds went away, and they created this program, which I think I mean is still in existence, you know, 25 years later. And, and I just think it's like I, I came back to my office realizing that I was pretty smart, but not not as smart as <laughs> as a group of people. And right. uh, and that if I really wanted to make smart policy, I needed to work with groups of people and their stories more. And that, that was what really set me off down the road of, of becoming a facilitator and working with groups in, in the service of collective intelligence and trying to address problems that have no easy answers. And so when when was that again? It would be about 1992. Yeah. And since then you've been 
doing a lot of work trying to bring people together. Yeah, I mean, since then, I work. I mean, I worked for that organization for three years. I worked for the provincial association in British Columbia for mm. a year and a bit, and then I went and worked with the federal government for three years. And my job with the federal government was really interesting. I was uh, the job title was public information and consultation advisor, I think, mm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And our, and my job was going to talk to non-indigenous stakeholders in the BC treaty process. So we had these advisory committees that had been set up in the mid-90s all around British Columbia mm-hmm. so that people with an interest in land and resources, and uh, it's largely land and resources, but, but other sectors as well, could participate in the treaty process by advising the two governments, the provincial and federal governments, on the treaty process. Um, and so I ran a bunch of these, probably in almost every region of the province. I, I probably ran about 15 or 20 of them over the, the three years I was together working with wow. the federal government. And my job would be to go out every month or every couple of months and, and host these regional commi- regional advisory committees where we would we would um, take take language that was being negotiated at the treaty table or take take ideas or maps where you know land was being selected and and run it past loggers and ranchers and you know people who fish and and hunters and mm. and people who do social development and and get their take on things and. You know, it was really challenging because a lot of those people, uh, it was at a time in British Columbia when a lot of non-Indigenous people were really vehemently opposed to the treaty process. And so a lot of what we would hear would be, you know, frankly, racist, um, mm-hmm. just vitriolic, a lot of opposition. It, you know, it was really hard to co-create treaties back then. But I think we did a really radical job in the federal government of, of being able to work with trust and mm. openness with people. I mean, we, we were engaged in a level of cons- consultation with people that I've never seen before and, and or since. And in fact, I think governments have really ratcheted back how well they do consultation. It's become quite a professionalized field. Mm-hmm. Um, at this stage, we were a bunch of facilitators out there running by the seat of our pants and just treating people like, you know, at a certain point you had to treat people like citizens and not let their opinions get in the way of you, you know, in the way of you seeing them. I mean, we were, we were the, we were the face of the government. So, you know, this to me was like the coal face of, of democracy. If you create, you have to create spaces that are that are that are safe for people whose opinions you find odious when you're caring for the mechanics of a democracy. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's what we were doing. And so so some people didn't last because they couldn't take what was being said. They couldn't hear it. They couldn't see the people pass the ideas. And and uh, me, I, I think I I I think I did a good job there. And it took three years to. It really makes some progress, and we made some progress, and we got some treaties signed. And I think we, with the support of the neighboring communities, with the support of provincials, you know, associations of logging and so on. But all of that, all of that was like incredible training, right? For being mm-hmm. able to work with groups in conflict, for being able to work with multiple and radically different perspectives. You know, um, I mean, it was it was not unlike a lot of the we, we talk about the division we see in society these days, and how do we facilitate that? I mean, we were dealing with the same kind of level of polar opposition mm-hmm. to, to stuff that was going on. So that was good training, and I, and I did that for three years, and, and, and then I I left that job because uh, I had a couple of young kids, and uh, the travel was, ironically, tr- the travel was too much, and I started consulting in 1999, and focusing mostly on large group uh, dialogic methods, mm-hmm. uh, like open space technology was the first one I, I, I came across, but World Cafe and Circles and Appreciative Inquiry, and, and that whole body of 
dialogic work was uh, was what I fell into, working with collective intelligence, working in complex problems, and um, bringing together diverse viewpoints in order to move forward. Fascinating, hey? Um, mm. Oh, yeah, it's been a journey. <laughs> yeah, it's it sounds like it's been a great journey. Uh, this this work that you did in the federal government, I want to mm-hmm. I want to touch on a bit more there because it it uh, made me think of a few things. Um, first off, this this uh, this one element, which is a lot of what government was doing in the past, was all around kind of engaging um, engaging people in rooms as citizens, as you were saying, right? And now mm-hmm. it seems it's been it's distanced itself a little bit from that using professional services to handle those kind of, uh, uh, I guess, more heated exchanges that can arise in some instances. Do you think that, do you think government is kind of, um, you know, becoming a little more risk averse as we move into the 21st century complex, wicked problems that we're having to face and, and they're trying to, um, I guess, distance their, political leaders, so to speak, and, and shield them from from issues? I would say that's true. I, I, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a fairly accurate assessment of what I've discovered. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, I think mm-hmm. politics is so volatile and turns on such small minutiae these days that the desire to control minutiae is a powerful incentive. And I think I think another uh, another issue which has been highly problematic in the field, especially with re- relation to government, but it's also true in the corporate sector, is the conflation of communications and consultation. Mm-hmm. So into what we call engagement. So um, a lot of the the consultation work we did, we we felt very strongly. We were also communicators. And we were involved in strategic communications, but we felt very strongly that that was a pretty close conflict of interest, actually. And we we would talk to our regional advisory committees about that conflict of interest so that they were aware that we were in it, too. So in other words, there were some things we had to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were clear. We were just open with them about that. And then there were things that we had to bring from the community into government, which was stuff that government didn't always want to hear. And we had to work with that because we had a commitment to those people. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the work that the work that we um, and so the work that we did was was we really delineated between the communications and and consultation side. And I think what's happened now is because pol- because politics has become, like I say, this kind of minute game. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the control of key messages is so intense that you have. If you look, you'll see that you don't have pure consultation processes anymore. You have engagement departments or you have engagement units. And these are people that are doing both the strategic communications and the consultation. And as a result, they opt for a very controlled, um, they opt for a very controlled process that generally tends to focus on the policy questions um, and a narrow range of outcome options that are predetermined by by government, there isn't a lot of co-creation that goes on. There isn't a lot of, uh, at least not publicly. There, I would say there is some of that that happens, but it's not in the engagement process. Yeah, it's kind engagement of... exercises tend to be a visible kind of uh, something we can hold up to say we did. The real constructive policy conversations go on behind closed doors um, with lobbyists or industry associations or those kinds of people who are, interestingly, 
are involved in, in co-creating government policies, for sure, for the most part, from a position of their own interests. But nevertheless, there's where the collaboration is happening, and it's not happening at the engagement and the engagement level. And I actually think that they're part of the reason for this um, a little bit, and it's not a maybe a popular opinion, um, and maybe maybe it betrays my age a little bit too. But I think part of it is that the field has become professionalized in the last 20 years, um, and it has, what it has lost in the professionalization of the practice of public engagement and facilitation, for that matter is it has lost the, it's, it's traded in the artisanal approach that we used to have to develop for a set of, um, for a set of, of, uh, of competencies and credentials. You're not, you can now get certified as a facilitator. You can get certified as a public participation practitioner, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. And the truth of it is that a certification alone doesn't guarantee quality. It guarantees, it guarantees that you've adhered to the, to the certification criteria. But not to the, not to the quality of practice. It takes a mm-hmm. practitioner years to be able to work with different groups and to be able to do it effectively. Um, I think that's acknowledged by groups like the International Association of Public Participation and the International Association of Facilitators. But I think that people who are hiring local governments, uh, provincial or federal governments, that are hiring people, are, are are putting in the job descriptions that they want this certification. And and so the problem is you don't actually have artists who have access to that job. You don't have people with the artisanal skill set mm-hmm. who have access to that job unless they also have the professional credentials. And so the professionalization of the field has reduced it hmm. to these core competencies. Um, and has actually, in my experience, I have seen people, my experience working with folks in both the government and the private sector, and it's, it's maybe even more so in the private sector, is that you have, um, you have a, a, almost a poverty of creativity and uh, and that's partly down to you have a um, a narrow latitude of work that you can do um, so that you don't have as creative people working there and they don't have as much latitude in the work that they can do most of the people that are really creative and that are are working in a broad range of strategic contexts are doing so as consultants now um, they're outside they're outside the system which is fine but I do think that I do think that it's it's problematic for our democracies that we're limiting engagement to such a focused and controlled way. And so that, that kind of like, I agree with you and I'm mm-hmm. sort of expanding on where I think that's yeah, yeah. from, at least in my experience. I, I might, that might not be the full story. That's certainly something I've been witnessing mm-hmm. over the past 20 years. And this is great. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to hopefully be able to return to this near the end when I ask you kind of what the future looks like, because there's a few things mm-hmm. that you brought up here that makes me think, Oh wow, the future looks uh, kind of dark. In a, in a funny kind of way, but I think there's also uh, lots of, you know, rays of light within it, too, that we can that we can focus on, too. Um, <laughs> hopefully. Right. Um, so. Uh, so another thing that uh, that you mentioned when you were talking about your work with the federal government and then, you know, we can go into kind of your work that you started in 1999 as well and talk a bit more about that, too. But before mm-hmm. we get to that bit. Um, just this this uh, interesting element, which I've experienced as well in my work, which is um, kind of, I guess, giving giving people the benefit of the doubt, even when uh, they deserve it the least, in a sense, right? Um, so you mentioned that you, you know you kind of saw a lot of your colleagues drop out of this process because you know this treaty process because you were seeing them bump into all of this racism and bigotry and whatnot, these kind of ugly feelings 
within the general public, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you you managed to kind of stick stick through all of that. Can you can mm-hmm. you explain a little bit about what what that was like for you, and um, you know, kind of the you know kind of what you had to employ from you know your skills or your experiences or your toolkit or whatever to try mm-hmm. and you know to to try and deal with those difficult conversations i guess where people are saying things that you fundamentally don't agree with but you're still trying to hold space for it yeah sure yeah i can tell you a story um about <laughs> the time i think i came to the conclusion that uh you have to work differently so this this the story goes that there's an old folk musician who passed away a number of years ago his name is utah phillips and mm-hmm. utah phillips is a uh, <clears throat> you know pretty radical dude and Oh, yeah. He got, uh, but he was also a, a co- real collector of of folk songs of the American working class, and that included cowboys. He was quite interested in cowboy songs, and so he he got a he was riding riding the rails in sometime in the fifties, mid century, and he got a, a a note from someone who said there's an old cowboy in New Mexico. He's, he lives out in the cabin way out in the middle of nowhere, who's, who's on his deathbed, and he's got all these cowboy songs, and and uh, you know you should you are going meet up with him and get some songs before he dies. And so there's nothing else to do. Utah Phillips made his way to this cowboy's place and there was a, a nurse there or his wife living at, at home with him. And uh, he said, she met him at the door and said, oh, Mr. Phillips, you know, it's it's uh, nice to meet you. Why don't you um, have a seat here and I'll uh, I'll go get him ready and you can go in and visit. And so as, as, as he's waiting, he looked up at the guy's, uh, cowboy had quite a library of books Mm-hmm. And he looked up and he noticed that there were a whole bunch of books from the John Birch Society, which is a ultra right wing, yeah. um, you know, kind of political <laughs> movement in the state in the in the in the you know early part of the 20th century. And I mean, uh, racist and nationalist and everything else. And he, and he just had that thinking feeling, that same sound you made. I think Utah Phillips made that sound, too. He said, what am I? Oh, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be ridiculous. I'm going to have a horrible time. And then he and then he had this epiphany. He said. He was looking at the bookshelves, and he said, you know what? There's a single book on these shelves about cowboy songs or about cowboying. And I realized that I'm not here. Like, if I wanted to talk to this, this guy doesn't know anything about politics. If I wanted to if I wanted to talk about politics with him, I could just read these books because this is all he knows, you know? But if I want to talk about cowboy songs, i got to talk mm-hmm. to him because that's, that's what he knows. He doesn't know anything about politics. He gets it from the books. But cowboy songs, he knows. And so he went in and he had this conversation with a guy and he collected some songs from him. And that's how he should be. And he concluded the story by saying, if you talk to people about what they know about, they'll always tell you the truth. So the next time I was up in the, I was up in the Caribou part of British Columbia. Hmm. And uh, we, we had a, a particular interesting set of uh, <laughs> opinions and ideas that we would run into up there from time to time. They were pretty against the treaty process. But we had a we had a group of about 35 uh, men and women who would come in and do um, give us a, a really, you know, their feelings <laughs> once a month. And, and at one, there was this one guy who I won't name, but he's, a, he's still active up there, and he's a, 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 an entrepreneur, a contract logger, uh, has his own business, medium-sized business, employs, you know, a fair number of people at and uh, had some really strong opi- had some really strong opinions about the treaty process. And he said he used to always say, you know, you can't make deals with Indians. You just can't do it. They're not they're reliable. They, I can't understand why you guys are doing all this, making all these deals. And 
And, uh, you know, it's kind of tiresome to hear. And, and he also had that kind of ability that, that, that people have of, of, of trying and sometimes succeeding to get under your skin, you know, just on principle mm-hmm. rather than anything else. And, uh, and, and one day I just, I just, with Utah Phillips's, you know, words ringing in my ears. One day I said to him, you know, uh, call him Bob. I said, you know, Bob, uh, I think you're lying. <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? I said, I don't think you know anything about first nations people. You, Cause you say the same thing week after week. And all you do is you just give me these racist, this racist crap. And I think you're lying. I don't think you know anything about what you're talking about. And he starts laughing, right? Like, like he's up for a fight. So he starts laughing and he's chuckling and said, look, I'll make you a deal. Uh, let's not have this conversation anymore. But instead, tomorrow morning, I'm going to come over to your place and you're going to take me way out on the land, out to your logging challenge. Just show me what you know about logging. Because you're a logger and that's what I want to talk to you about. It's not, it's, not my, it's not my job to listen to you spout off against Indigenous people. It's my job to listen to you about logging. That's what I'm going to do. So if you're up for that, I want to come and see you. He said, all right, you meet me at my place at five in the morning because we, we strike out early and we'll go out there. And so that's fine. So I showed up at his place and I brought some, I brought some coffee and donuts to feed his crew because we were going to go meet these guys. And so we drove way out into the foothills. And then all the way along, you know, actually his, the whole, his whole demeanor changed because I was asking him about logging and what it's like logging all this rotten cedar in the caribou and what he does with it. And he's just like, he's got, he's got a million ideas. And he's telling me about all this new equipment that he's just bought. And he's just bought this new feller buncher. And I can't wait for you to see it. And Okay, cool. So we're, we're getting out there and we're having a really great chat of just about what he loves, which is the land and, the, the, and, and cutting down trees. That's what he does and that's what he loves. And so he, we get out there, and, and there's a small clear cut, and there's about 12 guys, and they're working on, a, on the clear cut, and they're all up at the edges of the cut, you know, cutting trees down. And he gets on the radio, and he calls them all down, and we sort of pull up next to this stump and put the donuts and the coffee on the stump, and, 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 and he calls them all down. And they all come down, and they're all wearing their safety gear. And when they take their helmets and their masks off, like half of the crew is First Nations. So I just, I just, I start laughing, right? Like I'm looking at him laughing and I'm like, what the hell? And I said to these, I said to the guys, it's like, you know how he talks about indigenous people? And they're like, oh yeah, you can't listen to me. You know, this, this guy, he's an old, old blowhard. He's like, we're just laughing. And, and he says, oh no, these guys are fine. These guys are like, I've been with these guys for, these guys have my life, right? And we're here. So we're just laughing, right? And it's, and, and it's fine. And we're sitting around the stump, and I'm and I'm hearing from these guys about the treaty process because they don't all agree with the treaty process either. Some of their First Nations are in it, some of them are opposed, some of them want in, some of them want out. You know, I mean, they're just human beings having mm-hmm. a conversation about this stuff, and and they're all equally worried about the effect it's going to have on 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 their access to trees and their and their ability to do their jobs. And that's totally fair. That's what I was there to hear. That's you know, I mean, I think that's been the thing that's kept me going uh is that when you talk to people about what they know about they always tell you the truth Hmm. and so when i'm doing that kind of work uh consultation work engagement work i want to be out talking to people about what they know about and if i have to do a community meeting general community meeting where anybody's invited to come well then i have to figure out what it is that those people know that i don't know Mm -hmm. right and they're not going to be experts in the thing we're consulting on necessarily but they're experts in something they may be experts in their own values they may be experts in what they love about the place Mm -hmm. they may be experts in how to make something work but they don't they don't need to know necessarily the technicalities of fisheries habitat maintenance or 
banking systems or uh, rolling out this new IT idea. Like, And so often we go out to people and we assume that they're going to give us the answers that we otherwise already know mm-hmm. or or we have to go through this level of accountability to make sure that we've covered everything off. And so we ask questions like, what are we missing? And stuff like that, which are not helpful questions. Um, instead, you've got to ask questions about what people know about and what they love about. It. And you have to remember when you're doing a consultation that you're, 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 the people who are in the room are the experts, not the people presenting to them. And, uh, you know, that's like a fundamental, you know, when, once I remember that, once you remember that, that changes everything. Because so often engagement strategies have the expert at the front of the room presenting on the topic. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, asking people, what do you think? And people will line up at a microphone and yell at the person for an hour because why not? Yes. Uh, but if you flip it around and you treat it like a proper consultation, then the real experts are the ones who are sitting in the, in the quote, audience. In fact, those are the experts. So we need to be crafting processes to get information from them about stuff they know about that we don't know about. And so my presenters, when I do consultation, my presenters have to adopt the basic promise to me that they're going to be curious about the people who are coming, not the other way around. Right. Yes. Uh, I don't do information presentations. You can do information presentations. That's easy. Do a PowerPoint, put it on a website, do a talk. It doesn't matter to me. That's fine, but it's a, it's a valid thing. Mm-hmm. But don't call mm-hmm. that engagement. Don't call that consultation. I, th- I think If that... you want to consult with people, know who's got good stuff, mm-hmm. invite them in, create a space for them to be able to share their stuff, and you're going to get way smarter. I think my, my reaction to the <laughs> to the PowerPoint comment is just... Um, <laughs> You know, from, from uh, shared by a lot of people as well, I think, which is just from having experienced so many um, poorly designed uh, encounters with one another that we that we uh, affectionately call the meeting. Um, and maybe <laughs> maybe this is a perfect segue into kind of uh, the work that you started doing in the late '90s. It sounds like uh, getting mm-hmm. into dialogue and getting into these more. Um, kind of creative approaches to uh, just putting together how it is that people are going to be coming together around whatever meeting it is that we're having. Um, so, you know, when when you were describing your story there a few minutes ago, you mentioned a whole bunch of different tools really quickly, and each one could be an episode uh, on its own. And I'd, I'd like that sure. to be the case one day. Uh, find some other people to talk to about all those different fancy interesting and totally amazing tools so you mentioned open space you mentioned um i think you mentioned appreciative inquiry uh uh, quite a quite a few different things that you started experimenting with so what what did that period of your of your work look like and and how how are you bumping into these new ideas and new approaches Right. Well, I think in 1995, I mean, here here I've been kind of like running down the International Association of Public Participation a little bit. But the truth of it is that in 1995, they had their annual meeting in uh, Whistler. They were called IAP3 at the time. Mm-hmm. And they spent a whole day of that three-day conference in open space. And that was the first time I'd ever encountered the, the, the technique. And there were 400 mm-hmm. people in the room. So it was a, a real a real brave uh, thing to do. And, mm-hmm. and unbeknownst to me at the time, the people that were in the room holding space were quite incredible. Um, people who've since become friends and, and uh, like Ann Stadler, uh, who was, along with Harrison Owen, was really one of the, the founding uh, forces mm-hmm. behind open space. But, um, and so she was one of the people opening space that day. And so it was partly done as a way, because it's a great way to run a conference. 
the moment we, we, we sat the 400, you know, you know, you know, open space, we sit the 400 people in a circle, a couple of concentric circles, and we create the agenda for the breakout sessions in real time. So we have, we have a whole Whistler Convention Center. We've got a million different breakouts. We've got three or four time periods over the course of the day. And we've got a bank of computers that somebody set up so we can all come and type up our notes. And the elegance and simplicity of the design was striking. Okay, wait, And the wait. moment I... Re- Bef- yeah. Before you go too far along, because I, I sure. have an idea about what open space looks like, but my right. listeners, they could, you know, if, if you could kind of get a little more detailed on what that looks like, uh that that would be sure. helpful yeah sure so you know it's 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 it looks like every other conference you've ever been to mm-hmm. and that you start in a plenary and you finish in a plenary and you have breakout sessions the only difference from every other conference you've ever been to is that the breakout sessions aren't predetermined so it allows space for the participants themselves to create the topics that they want to engage in and it allows for anybody in the conference to either post a topic or go along to any of the topics that are interesting to them. And it puts the responsibility for taking, keeping records and uh, for running the conversations and Mm -hmm. keeping records in the hands of the conveners uh, who are completely capable of doing it because human beings, it turns out, have been conversing with each other and taking (laughs) notes for a long time. (laughs) We're good at it. Yeah, we're good at it. You don't actually need to appoint one facilitator and note taker for every, all the, you know, humans can do this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the facilitator spends about 15 minutes introducing the the process, introducing the the basic principles of open space, uh, how the day will work, and then lets people go to work. And then at the end of the day, we come back together and, and share a few reflections. And while that's happening, somebody else is photocopying all the all the reports that have been written and everybody leaves with a copy of the, the, the conference sessions in hand. It's brilliant, simple, powerful. Um, Harrison Owen, who developed it, claims it's a two martini idea. Um, there's a great story around that, but basically it's that simple. It's turning the conference inside out. So the whole thing has the energy of a coffee break where people are engaged in the conversations they want to be engaged in. And it works great for conferences and it works great for doing strategic planning when you just don't know what needs to be in the plan, when you just don't know what the conversations are that people need to have, it's a great networking tool. Mm-hmm. I mean, the same basic framework is applicable in almost any imaginable conversation, except for the ones where you already know what the answers are and you already know what you're going to do. Uh, if, you know, if you know what that is, then just go ahead and do things. But if you really do have a bunch of people coming together and you don't know what interests them and you don't know what they're capable of, then... To me, open space is a beautiful process for allowing them to unleash their collective creativity. So, you know, I didn't know such a thing as open space existed. It was it was kind of codified in the early 80s by Harrison, who wrote the first user's guide, I think, about 1985. But, um, you know, I had, I had no idea about it and uh, experienced it for the first time. And I just had this strong sensation that I had come home, that this was exactly how I believed communities and organizations and people were capable of working mm-hmm. and that this unleashed a whole bunch of ideas in me both as in terms of what groups are capable of but also what the role of the facilitator is because what i noticed was ann statler opening space mm-hmm. for 15 minutes and then i never saw her again for the rest of the day and an entire conference was self-organized and run by 400 people together with no previous instruction other than four basic principles that she gave in a couple of simple instructions. 
Mm-hmm. And and so the role of the facilitator then, you know, you start questioning like, okay, like it feels like we're working a bit hard here if if people are capable of this level of work. Uh, and the preconditions, you know, I mean, it, it requires some preconditions to be in place, some pre-work in place to be able to get people into a room where they're curious and activated like that. But if you get them into a room like that, what else do you have to do except get out of their way? Mm-hmm. So I started, that open space was the first thing I discovered and the first of these methods I discovered. And I didn't know there were other, in fact, some of the others hadn't been invented by then. But uh, but this was, this was uh, you know, in 1995 and I, I found a couple of applications of open space in the federal government work I was doing. And so I, I proposed using it as an experiment. Um, and the regional advisory committees we were working with wanted to go along with it. And we had a couple of a couple of amazing open spaces. And we had one incredibly disastrous one, which <laughs> is a kind of funny story. But uh, maybe I'd go back to it. It's kind of funny. But, but we ran these experiments just so I could see how it worked, right? And, and it worked you know, great. I worked great. Even the disastrous one where 75% of the people left, the 25% of the people that were left had a great time. So, you know, in that sense, it was perfect. But what we ended up, what, what ended up happening uh, was that I, I started really tapping the expertise of the open space facilitators network, the community network, uh, who were very generous with their time and being able to answer my questions and and, and, and so on. And I realized at, that at some level, at the heart of this community of practice was actually a gift economy. And that was that was true of both the facilitators I was working with, and it was also true of the people that showed up in open space, that I realized what was going on in open space was people were giving gifts to each other all the time. Hmm. They were contributing space, ideas, time. I mean, the, the value of exchange, if you were to put a monetary value on it, in an open space meeting is immense. The amount of value that's exchanged mm-hmm. in a short period of time, whether it's over a couple of hours or a day, because people aren't sitting on their hands. They're not sitting there on their ideas. They're, they're chucking them into the middle of the marketplace. They're having things worked on and, and worked through and rejected and tightened up and pulled to pieces. I mean, the whole, the whole process can be very, very powerful and, and transformative. And so, uh, so that's what led me kind of into it. So it was open, open space was really was really the first one then, and and it and it set me off on this on this inquiry both about the kinds of methods that would be useful for dealing with complex problems, mm-hmm. which open space fits into, and dialogue in general is is what we need in a complex space. And then it also also focused me on thinking about what's the role of the facilitator then, and it was through that inquiry that I ended up a few years later. Um, two or three years later, uh, meeting my friend and, and mentor Toka Mura, um from the art of hosting community, and, and and fell quite deeply into that community of practice, which is a global community of practice that that looks really at these questions I was into. Uh, mm. There were a number of us around the world that had been doing this kind of dialogic work, and we're starting to ask questions around like, what are the implications for leadership, for organization, for community organizing? for networking and so on and so forth. And of course, we were being impacted at that same time with digital technology and the way that was transforming relationships in a way that my friend John Husband calls moving from hierarchy to wirearchy. And so, you know, we're being fundamentally transformed by our technologies, whether they're digital or social. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we need new forms of leadership and new forms of working with groups. And that's what the art of hosting community uh, became for me and still is to this day, is, is, a, is a, a, a group of people to inquire around about the implications of these ways of, of organizing. Hmm. 
And was that, did you say Tokum Mueller? Yeah, Tokum Mueller, yeah. Okay. From Denmark. Him and his partner, uh, Monica Nissen, and uh, a few other uh, a few other Danish facilitators who were mostly involved in, in, in cafe, world cafe work, mm-hmm. um, Jan Hein and Karsten Ohm. And a couple of these guys were, were, were asking these same questions at the same time. And they, they discovered that uh, the term, the art of hosting, and the practice of the art of hosting, and, and began to name it that way, mm-hmm. as a way of kind of, in a way, delineating it from facilitation, although it's not, it's not a, a strictly black and white you know, difference. But I think the, the idea there is that there's an art to this work, and uh, that we're kind of obligated to develop ourselves as artists, rather than as um, technicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what would it look like for us to be developing our leadership as artists, our facilitation as artists, our um, management styles as artists, our community organizing as artists? So it's, so really it's an artistic approach, an, or I should say an artisanal approach mm-hmm. to doing group work. And so it requires self, obviously self-development and reflection, and it requires sharing within a community of practice, working with mentors, working with apprentices, all, to all the traditional ways in which artists learn and grow. Um, they they cobble those together into a field of inquiry called the art of hosting. So in a way, it sounds like, you know, based on where you started with your work, which was this this interesting moment of, uh, of the circle, um, mm-hmm. you're, you're coming back again to the circle in a sense, like... With, with the work that was... <laughs> that happens in circles. It does, yeah. <laughs> it yes, does. I mean, it's like... Recursive the, the structures circle, it, all around. Yeah, recursion, yeah, turtles all the way down. Like, I, I have a, yeah, recursion alert. Oh, no, you know, when, whenever I issue the warning that there's a recursion alert, I know that we're actually dealing with a legitimate living system. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've always come back. I mean, it's never left the circle. The circle is the center. It's kind of the mother mm-hmm. practice of all of this work. It's the most ancient human way of organizing. You know, my friend Christina Baldwin, who, well, along with her partner Anne Linnae, I created a body of work called the Circle Way, um, <clears throat> says that, uh, you know, for most of the last million years, our survival has depended on getting to a fire, mm-hmm. right? And when you get to a fire, you, the only way to share a fire equally is to stand around it. And if I'm going to share my fire with you, I hope you're bringing something to eat or a story that will help us. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and that's how we've evolved as humans. You know, we're, we're, you know some have said that we're, we should be known as humo narans because uh, we've gathered around fires and told our stories for an awfully long time. It's the way we make sense of the world that isn't easy to understand and the way we check it out with each other. So the circle is, the, for me, it's the source process of all of the work I do. Uh, even if I'm not actually putting people physically in a circle, um, it's it's nevertheless, yeah, it's at the core of everything. And dialogue, which comes from the circle, right? And this, right. and for me, like this, this, I'm totally on on your uh, on your level here with this. So one thing that this brings to mind is uh, is kind of the opposite of of the circle of you know what is likely within our evolutionary history kind of the fundamental core truth about how we come together and have dialogue which is to do so around a fire sharing food or sharing a story so that's that's kind of that's almost that history is so long and so deep that when we find ourselves in a space that's like that we kind of immediately just know what to do it's natural um, right. and then you, you counter that with, uh, 
with how meetings and encounters between people are usually managed and there's usually a lot of control and there's usually a lot of uh, PowerPoints and very like <laughs> talk heavy agendas where people are just essentially sitting in seats, staring mm -hmm. at, at screens and, and listening to people talk. So, you know, I think when people think about meetings, I think they usually think about that, unfortunately, right? They think that that's mm -hmm. what a meeting is and that's, that's all a meeting can ever be. So, if you were to talk to the average person who is maybe, you know, maybe they're going to be hearing us in this conversation wondering, what are, are these guys talking about meetings? Like, what would you, how would you describe a meeting to that average person in a way that would have them see again the potentiality that, that lies within this encounter between other humans? What is well, a meeting? Yeah. What is a meeting? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the answer to that kind of depends, actually. Um, and so I would, uh, you know, I take a lot of uh, helpful guidance from uh, learning I've been doing around, um, well, the technical term is the ontology of these kinds of problems. So the nature of these kinds of questions, which is what you're asking. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Dave David Snowden, who's uh, a, a guy who I've studied a little bit with and continue to banter around, has created a very helpful framework called Kniven, which basically delineates between kinds of problems we face as humans, uh, divides them up according to causality. So there are things that are simple simple relationships between causes and effects, um, and those ordered systems are the ones we're pretty familiar with as, as being technical problems to solve. Mm -hmm. they're, they're largely teachable, learnable Skills transfer is very straightforward. PowerPoints are very, very helpful, actually. <laughs> Bullet points are very good. Here's mm -hmm. the three steps you need to do in order to build an IKEA table. Right. It's not a complex problem. There's no emergence involved in it. And so once you learn how to do it, you learn how to do it, and away you go. And, and meetings to do that kind of work are very different from the kinds of meetings around complex problems. And complex problems are, are characterized by high levels of emergence. Um, in other words, you get situations, you get results that nobody in the system planned for, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, poverty is an example of emergence. Nobody nobody has set out to create a world, I mean, nobody has set out to create a world in which poverty is a reality. We don't, we pretty much we all agree we don't want that, even though it's a necessary part of capitalism. But I think that, you know, in a, in a community, you see these dynamics that occur all the time that are completely emergent. And mm -hmm. And nobody has the answer to them because they're not predictable. They're not predictable problems. And so in order to make sense of them, you can't simply analyze the way the future is going to go like you can when you're building an IKEA bookshelf. Mm -hmm. the, the map of the future is very clear when you're building an IKEA bookshelf. And people spend a lot of time and money at IKEA creating, you know, wordless diagrams that help anybody build an IKEA bookshelf. It's an amazing process that they go through to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, you can sit with your, your roommate and the two of you can have a meeting around interpreting the instructions, right? And one of you is going to be showing the picture to the other one. Um, hopefully conflict-free, but occasionally it would be like, no, you idiot, it goes on the other, right? But you can, but you can, have, you can have a meeting like that. They should have an IKEA about, workbook on that. Right? You can have, yeah, like how to best use these instructions. So you can have a meeting 
on that where you agree on, you know, the, the objective future and you can evaluate your progress according to that. Now, there are problems like that in the world all the time that we face. And so that's a legitimate form of meeting. But we privilege that form of meeting because that form of meeting comes with expertise. It comes with uh, somebody who knows more than somebody else. And, uh, and, and we'll take a, a guess about the future, <laughs> maybe an educated guess about the future, and they might actually be right about the future. Mm-hmm. And so we privilege expertise in our culture. And, and you can't be an expert if you don't have an answer. In complexity, you can't be an expert unless you have a question. Uh, complexity does not love answers. I mean, there's a million proverbs about this. It's not like we've only recently confronted complexity, but there's, you know, for example, uh, you know, there's like trust in Allah, but tie up your camel is a good one. Or, you know, man, you know, man makes plans and God laughs, you know, is another good one. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, there is a, there is a force of nature that will always confound the experts with complexity. And where you have living systems and multiple causes and stuff involved, you need to not be needing to take orders from somebody who will tell you this is how it's going to go. You need to be discerning with each other. What is happening? Uh, what do we do about it? <laughs> what does it mean? And then what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. So basically, those are the kinds of meetings we're talking about. Now, at scale, I mean, a, a staff meeting should be that. You know, at a, a regular half-hour staff meeting in an organization should be somebody going, what the hell is going on this week? Right. And having a good conversation about that rather than saying, can you please read the email that you would, you sent me 15 minutes ago mm-hmm. uh, to tell me what you're up to this oh, week. I, 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 you know, I can't imagine how much money is wasted by people reading out their emails and calling it a staff meeting. You know, when instead you've got all this brain power in the room, even for a half an hour, mm-hmm. what's happening? What does it mean? What do we do now? Uh, who's got a question this week that's like really burning that you can't answer alone? Mm-hmm. Oh, I got one. Like I don't. I like I don't know how we're going to tap this market. Like I've been trying to get into, I've been trying to get our products into Coquitlam for ages, and I haven't got a clue what to do next. It's like okay, let's brainstorm around that. Now, what a great use of a half an hour. Nobody's got an answer, but we can come up with, we can come up with uh, some ideas. We can we can brainstorm some. So those are the kinds of meetings I'm talking about. It's about making sense of complexity. Now, at increasing scales, when you're working with bigger strategic questions like. You know, some of the ones I'm in right now, how do we engage in reconciliation as a society? How do we um, accelerate the uptake of palliative care in the health system in the United States? I mean, these are questions I'm in right now with clients. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody has an answer to those questions. So all you can do is bring people together to explore, experiment, stay in touch, make sense of what you're learning and doing. And when you find stuff that works, doing more of that. And when you find stuff that doesn't work, doing less of that and bringing diverse voices in because you need multiple perspectives to make sense of things. You mm-hmm. cannot convene the same people, uh, the same old people, the same old time, because if they had the answers, you wouldn't have the problem anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. So often in complexity, innovation and newness comes from outside what we know. And so we need to find we need to find naive expertise. We need to find novel ideas. We need to be challenged and have our minds shaken up. We need to not get so addicted to our to our ideologies and so on and so forth. So the kinds of meetings in which dialogue plays a role are meetings where that is a requirement. That mm-hmm. We need to be open-minded. We need to hear from others. We need to take that on board. We need to be able to articulate ourselves in a way that ideas can be taken on board. And we need to discover something between us that is probably a bigger answer than any one of us has. Um, and so that's what that's why this field of dialogue has become so 
uh, is growing so fast and becoming so important so fast is because those are the kinds of problems that we're being faced with. And we are being given only the options of an expert or a strong man, if you like, because mm-hmm. fascism looks very attractive in a system like that. When you don't have answers for someone to come along and tell you how it's going to be, that I, you know what? I haven't got a clue what to do. I'm going with that person. Exactly. And uh, yeah. so you can you can really get behind a strong man. You can get behind experts. Uh, experts have a role. Don't get me wrong. Like I don't want a bridge built by a bunch of people who've never built bridges before because mm-hmm. that would just be a cool idea to build them out of lollipops. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, that's not what yeah. a bridge is for. No. Uh, so I need experts to come in and do that work. But how do I create uh, a sense of connection between the two communities on the other side of that bridge? That's a job for for all of us to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. And what you're saying there reminds me of uh, of a talk I saw online recently. Uh, Jeff Mulgan, uh, I guess the Nesta CEO was talking around, uh, I think, November 2016, so just after Trump's election, you know, all about uh, what what is social innovation to do now in this in this new world where we're, where we're seeing a number of trends, uh, you know, that are kind of uh, a little worrying, like people, I guess he was quoting one particular trend, uh, which is kind of more people through this survey uh, you know, agreeing that maybe democracy isn't such a good idea and they'd rather have, a, you know, a, a strong leader, um, you know, mm-hmm. figure out what to do. Uh, and so, that you know, that, that definitely is something that we're beginning to see now, this whole conversation around, you know, the rise of populism mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the all of these uh, these emerging fears of... of migrants and cosmopolitanism and globalism and all of this stuff is in a way it's 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 kind of happening as a result of the sheer complexity of the problems that we face and it just to a lot of people it makes sense to turn to a simple answer or a strong leader or something like this right that that you can get behind and you know hopefully everything goes well <laughs> but <laughs> we yeah, we, you know, yeah. we are, we are not. Uh, I don't. I don't think we're not. We're not serving ourselves uh, very well when we do that. Um, as as a community, especially, right? We're we're missing out on those marginal voices, as you talked about, um, that really bring in the innovative ideas and bring in the the whole other kind of, you know. Uh, list of questions that I guess we're, we're incapable yeah. of asking if we're in the majority because, well, think, because think, we're not, we're not seeing yeah. and experiencing those same things that the margins are experiencing and seeing. Right. And I, and I think that, you know, uh, I mean, what's also quite true is that if innovation comes from the margins, then it's no surprise that in order for you to collapse the decision-making down to a strong man, you need to alienate the margins. And I think that that's what we're seeing. You know, we don't want to be changed by others. Um, we just don't want to be changed by others. And so we we stop them from coming into our country. We ignore their voices. We stigmatize them and demonize them. And the, the, the truth of it is that that's a, that's a suicide watch. That puts our, our species on a suicide watch because we have not evolved without listening to and being changed by other people. That's how we've evolved. Mm-hmm. And if we decide that that fundamental... That fundamental um, 
function of our own evolution as a species is no longer relevant, then I don't think evolution owes us the, <laughs> the yeah. grace yeah. <laughs> of like picking and choosing what, what parts of it we like. You know, we, we, we resist change. I mean, I think there's a certain amount of entitlement in the West at the moment now that you believe that you get to have the world on your own terms and the way you want it. And uh, so far, you know, with a lot of force and energy put into maintaining that worldview, that's worked for many of the people in the West who continue to use force to have the way to have the world the way they want it, and everybody else acquiescing in in, in different ways. I think I, I think that just creates a brittle society in the end because you you are way less agile than um, than everybody else. And I mean, the truth of it is, is like if we have to deal collectively with a a crisis like climate change that uh, is a slow burn but but could could become a, f- a sort of faster and faster large-scale events coming together. Mm-hmm. I think I want to be living in a community of people who've been refugees for quite a while. Like, if those people are coming to Canada, refugees are coming to Canada with all of the learning that they've taken about being agile, being creative, being flexible, uh, dealing with trauma, working working in a way, you know, it's like, why wouldn't you want folks that have been at the margins for so long actually being central in the decision-making process when the world that you're a part of is coming apart? Because mm-hmm. they've already been there, you know? And so it's, it's like, and, and then you see in the United States, like just this executive order that gets passed saying, we're not going to take any more refugees. And it's like, oh my God, you know, here, it's like, it's like saying like, I don't, I don't like gas, so I'm not going to put any in my car anymore. So you can do that, but your car won't run, right? You get that, right? You can have that choice. You can have the choice to exclude people with mm-hmm. from the margins from your decision making, but you don't get to have creativity anymore, right? You get that. Like that, that's a that's a bargain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, take it or leave it. And I think coming back to your uh, statement there about the campfire and the circle around the mm-hmm. fire and sharing food, sharing stories. That's as old as migration for humans. You know, humans, this whole notion of, you know, settled life uh, with agriculture and farming and whatnot, that's like, you know, what, the last 3,000, 4,000 years? <laughs> you know? Yeah. The yeah. depth of our history is really one of movement and uh, kind of moving across territories and whatnot. So that that whole that whole drive to you know close everything off with walls and and uh isolate yourself from that movement i agree is yeah. is really strange and it runs counter to one of my favorite quotes which has actually uh led to me having uh very uh wonderful friendships with people that i never would have actually met uh because i actually put it on a t-shirt i had when i was in university so The quote is from John Cage, and he says, um, to improve society, spend more time with people you haven't met. Right. (laughs) And it's just so, it's so simple, uh, and it it, it works. I've I've worn it on t-shirts, and and, uh, people have come up to me and said, okay, let's try it. (laughs) (laughs) And then, wow, you know, like, uh, one of those, one of those individuals, like, he's still an amazing friend, and we've been friends for over a decade now. Um, yeah. So I agree. Like, you, you know, people have to, people have to mix it up. We have to get outside of our little in-groups 
And, sure. uh, well, yeah, I think it's both ends, to be honest. I mean, I think it's both ends because I do think that there is a there, there is a power to belonging mm-hmm. that is important. Right? Yes, so, yep. so if we're just outside of our own groups and we're alienated, then we, we experience a couple of things. We experience uh, loneliness some of the time, mm-hmm. and we also and powerlessness, therefore. And we also experience, um, there's like a shadow side of that where we can experience our agency at an inflated rate. So we believe we're more important or uh, effective than we really are because we get to choose where we go and what we do and who we're connecting with and all that. So mm-hmm. I do think that there's something about also belonging good point, yeah. to a community of practice, to a village, to a family mm-hmm. that we're also built for. So I think we're built for both of those things. I think and we're built for forming, forming, breaking, and reforming. And that echoes and the... Are, the talk mm-hmm. that Jeff gave to, you know, he said his whole thing was mm-hmm. how do we synthesize the the old world, which is now this kind of globalization and this open borders and, uh, you know, all of that. How do we synthesize that with this new emerging world, which is populism, which is this desire for belonging, right? That's mm-hmm. what's being expressed here is this desire for people to feel a sense of belonging. So I totally, I totally hear you on that. Yeah. So yeah. So it's it's that. Uh, yeah. I think, and I think that that's what I think. Di- I think dialogue allows you to do both. Dialogue allows you to be in in good, close, belonging mm-hmm. relationships with the people that have your back and that are your people. And also, not to get too the, the shadow of that is tri- this kind of tribalism that you know will have you dead in a minute because you're not listening to the other voices mm-hmm. and have you be able to connect with other people that are unlike you in every way. So that you can you can um, you can bring new ideas to your group. So it's you know I I think all the, the processes I work with kind of mimic that. Like there's a recursion mm-hmm. alert for me, right? That's like oh my god, that's all the way up and down. So that must be that must be true of a living system. That must mm-hmm. be true something deeply true about who we are as a species and um, and who our communities are. That we can do both, and we've survived by doing both. So what are the basic core? processes that allow us to do both and how can we have more of those so this i'm gonna i'm gonna start to head us towards kind of the final closing questions here but there's one last one that i want to ask based on based on what we've talked about so far and Mm. and just based on kind of my uh i'm putting on my um executive hat so i'm pretending to Mm -hmm. be an executive now and he's just heard us talk about all this stuff and he might. Why is it, why, wait a minute. Why? Why is it a man? Okay, maybe it's a woman. Okay, so she's she's. You're right. You're right. Or or you know, transgendered executive as well, sure. right? So it could be anybody. So uh, they. Great. <laughs> they're coming forward and they're they're saying, okay, this is all well and good, but it's kind of kumbaya. You know, I want to, at the end of a meeting, I want to find out how we're going to implement the damn thing and get it done. Um, mm-hmm. So what do you say to this tricky question of implementation, which I know you've talked about a bit in, in some of your work as well, but how important <laughs> is it to plan for implementation outside of the meeting? But that's all we're doing. That's all we're doing. The only reason for having a meeting is because you have to implement something. And the only reason for, and, and so knowing what you're trying to implement, like the ontological question becomes really important. What's mm-hmm. the kind of problem we're trying to solve? 
Because if it's a technical problem, yeah, why, what's, what's the holdup? Like, get the damn thing installed. Get my tires changed. Put the, put the new initiative into, into place. What's, what's the problem? Well, the, so if it's a technical, complicated problem, yeah, implementation should be fairly straightforward, and the conversations, in essence, should just be about like mm-hmm. uh, problem solving. No problem. We know how to do that well as a culture, so that's good. So those are the kind of meetings you need for those kinds of problems are problem-solving meetings. Those are not the kinds of meetings that you need if your problem is racism, right? Because we don't have answers to that. We, we, and the answers we do, if you do believe, somebody says to you, oh, I, I see a world in which there is no racism. It's like, that's awesome. Great, but that's not a plan. That's not the same thing as saying, I have a bunch of laminated boards and I'm going to build a bookshelf out of them. Look, here's mm-hmm. the picture of the bookshelf. Right? So fundamentally, to the executive, what I would say is make sure you're asking your people the right questions to address the kinds of problems that you're facing. And whatever you do, don't make the mistake of asking them to solve complex problems because that is a strategic nightmare. Mm-hmm. You're going to come up with a you're going to come up with a strategic plan to solve racism, develop a new market. You're going to come up with a strategic plan for that that is impossible to achieve. And if you narrow down your accountabilities to an Excel spreadsheet of who is doing what by when, and you slot it all into project management software, and you hold people accountable for the project management commitments that they've made, I would be very surprised if you solve racism at the end of the day. <laughs> what you're doing is you're creating is you're going to create an accountability structure, right, where you tie people's remuneration and reward to whether or not they've executed the small tasks that are possible because solving racism is impossible. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to break down and I'm going to contact like five people of color and I'm going to tick that off and I'm going to show that I did that. And, and, and next I'm going to do another, you know, and so you break these things down. Now that, that's where we have this massive category error in strategy, it's around using the wrong implementation processes. Mm. I, I'm a facilitator that hates meetings because most meetings are unnecessary. Mm-hmm. But when you discover the need for a meeting and you discover the kind of meeting you need to have and you discover the purpose for which you're all gathered, then I'm a stickler for making sure that that's the best damn meeting you could have, <laughs> right? And that means getting straight on the ontology of it. What's the kind of problem we're trying to address or the kind of problem we're trying to solve? Who needs to be there? And then, you know, what are we, what are we actually all, all together to do? So, so for the executive, I would say just get smart. Like just read all of the management literature that's been coming out for the past 30 years and understand that complex problems are where your leadership is required. And if you are an executive and you've gotten there on your merits as a manager – and you're you're scared by volatile, uncertain, complex, and you know what's the A stands for? <laughs> um, oh right, yes. You know, like all of these angry. <laughs> I can't remember what it is. But if you're if you're frightened by uncertainty, uh, then mm. you're not being a leader. Then you're not being a leader, and you're certainly not being a leader at the executive level. Executives have to be comfortable with working with uncertainty. The best way to work with uncertainty is work with a bunch more people than you. Right, mm-hmm. And then you can deal with uncertainty together, which is way better than dealing with it alone. But also don't believe that you're inadequate because many executives believe they're inadequate for being able to deal with the levels of uncertainty that their organizations are, are facing. And my response to that would be, hey, like, relax. You're not alone. Everybody mm-hmm. is inadequate. Everybody feels inadequate in dealing with the levels of volatility and uncertainty that they're dealing with at, their, at high levels like that. So don't get down on yourself. Just get good people around you and get the conversation kind of conversations going that help you make sense of where your next move will be. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Be a leader. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Be a leader. Don't be. You can. You can get high in organizations by being a good manager, and that's fine. But good managers and good leaders are not the same thing. And good leaders are not good leaders because they're doing something differently alone. Good leaders are good leaders because they work with others well to address the kinds of problems that they are responsible for facing. Yeah, I think I think right there you're kind of nailing a, a key aspect of it, which is that implementation for a typical problem-solving situation, a technical problem-solving situation, can come down to that Gantt chart and that you know spreadsheet with the list of accountabilities and things like this. And you can have a manager overseeing that process. But when you're talking about leadership and we're talking about that executive level of leadership, what you're mm-hmm. looking at when you're thinking about implementation is this whole other terrain of partnership and relationship and strategic alliance and kind of, you know, thinking about how you position the work that you're doing. And especially if it's a complex problem, right? Like, um, I read a great book a few years back called Rescuing Policy by Don Lenahan. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he has this great example. I think it was the Harper government that, that was running on an election campaign promise to, uh, to reduce wait times at hospitals. Mm. But throughout the campaigning process, they didn't do the work on the ground, establishing the relationships, making the connections with all the different agencies and organizations and interest groups and things like this that they would need to, that they would need to kind of be bringing into their problem solving tent. And so when, when they came into power and they were trying to deliver that, promise which seems so simple on paper i mean let's just Mm. you know reduce the wait times what's the big deal (laughs) right you know it turns out that that is actually a really complicated complex problem and to tackle it you need to you need to be thinking about relationships not just kind of campaigning around the messaging so exactly and then this and this is a big reason why in public policy we're suffering a paucity of leadership because because a campaign promise like lower wait times, it, it, like like there's a really simple answer to that. And the simple answer to that is just every patient that comes into the hospital, kill them, <laughs> just kill them, and and you'll be you know, the problem solved. There won't be any wait times at all. So that's you the enter technical solution. And, <laughs> yeah, that's the technical solution. So I can manage my way out of that problem. Like given you know, the problem is that the constraints that we're under don't allow for such simple answers. And so then require us to, well, if we can't just kill them, then what are, you know, what are we going to do? And then it becomes, then you actually see that the problem is complex and so is the solution. The solution is complex. And the solution being complex means that we'll never, you will never get a finish line, right? There will never mm-hmm. be a time when there are ideal wait, you know, it's like, oh, we finally did it. We achieved wait times. The wait times we all want and we're all happy with that. And now we can put up our feet and open cappuccino bars or do whatever we do with all of our spare time. Cut ribbons. Um, You know, once you've done that, you now need to maintain it. Mm -hmm. And you need to adapt as changing changing things adapt. So if you go slashing a healthcare budget now that you've let wait times to go, you know, you can expect that all your good work will be undone probably. So, So you need to build into place, as you're saying, relationships in order to maintain the agility that's required to address the ongoing nature of a complex problem like waiting room uh, hospital wait times mm-hmm. because it will change and, and it will shift and change over time. So, yeah, so dialogue is how you do that. I mean, dialogue is how we've always done that. Dialogue is – and it's not like what I'm saying is new even in the management literature. This stuff is 
50 years old. I mean, I don't understand why, why it's all, it sounds so kumbaya and everything else. This is well-established organizational practice that we're talking about here. It's not, this is not something we're just making up as we go along, you know? So <laughs> pretty funny, but it's, but it means that you're required to engage with uncertainty. And I think that that's the, the thing a voter does not want to hear that a politician does not know how to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're not going to get elected if you say, you know what, that's a good question. I actually don't know. I think what I'm going to do is call together an all-party committee and a constituent assembly, and I'm actually going to put that question to them. Maybe they'll have a better answer. Excuse me. Maybe they'll have a better answer than me. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I would vote for that person, but that person will lose. <laughs> but it's it's all in it's all in how they frame that, though, right? Like, if they if they frame it the right way, I think that there's that there's still a chance. And so maybe maybe this yeah. is kind of moving into the into the future direction here. So, right. um, so here, here's a, here's, here's, here's the rapid round questions. Sure. Um, so tell me about, uh, an important mentor that you've had in your life and how did this person impact you? And, and it might be somebody that you've already mentioned and that's fine too. And you can elaborate mm-hmm. a bit more. And, and what valuable learning did you get from this person? Ha, huh, that's a good question. I've had a lot of mentors, and I have mentors in my life um, that I continue to work with mm. um, in many different ways. I mean, I think, I, think, I think one thing to say is you should always have mentors. If you find yourself not having mentors, then you're not doing it right. So um, be sure that there are always people that you're learning from and, and always people that know more than you do. Um, I would say that one of my, my, probably my most, well, the one mentor that comes to mind, um, I would, I would say Toka, Toka Muller, um, a person, who's a person I met. Um, and I think his, his partner as well, like the two of them, Toka Muller and Monica Nissen together, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, are very important mentors, and and how they've mentored me is um, that they 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 kind of um, we met because we were in the same questions together, and because I realized that I had something to learn from them, I in a way like lowered myself to learning. I was curious about what they had to offer and how they were seeing the world, and I absorbed. I, I sort of uh, fell into like I let myself be absorbed by what their work was, mm. and and so got taught a lot by them. But it wasn't very long before we acknowledged that that I was that that they acknowledged my progress in a way, and sort of was able to say, you know what, um, you're uh, you're uh, uh, we're learning as much from you as you're learning from us, kind of thing. And so you know, there's a certain level you, you when you're working with your mentors where you become you know, colleagues. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a, a powerful and important threshold to go into. And I mean, one of the things that those guys taught me was, I think, they've taught me a lot, but I think one of the things they've taught me is this, this focus on implementing, this focus on, on the reason why we meet as humans and, 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 and the necessity to bring humanity to the way we meet. That, that fundamentally what we're looking for as human beings is to be in relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all of these meetings in a way can be like healing. Um, they heal massive ails in ailments in our society of alienation of isolation of a lack of belonging of the lack of inclusion 
Um, so I think they really taught me to, to, to see this as a human endeavor and, and, uh, and to see it as an aesthetic endeavor too, that, mm -hmm. that, that this kind of work is not simply, is not simply about results, but it's about beautiful results. It's about trying to create things that are beautiful in the world and trying to do work that is good, like really good, like good looking, effective, uh, for good. Um, yeah. And so I think that they've, they've been, they've been wonderful mentors to me in thinking about that. And mm. Uh, they, I, I think they would say their work has been about peace. <laughs> if you were to get like deep into it, mm -hmm. and I can see that, I can see that. I think it is about it is about peace, or at least living together in a way that is less dangerous. Uncovering peace. Sure. Hmm. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, okay, so here here's another one here. This is kind of a parallel universe question in a way. So. Is there another way to do what you have done? And what is it? <laughs> and would you have gone that way when you started? <laughs> um, is there another way to do what I've done? Yeah, because the, what I've done has been uniquely about me. So is there another way for me to have done what I've done? I would say yes, but it wouldn't be me. Um. This the work that I'm doing in the world, and the work that all of us are called to do in the world is to be our best selves. Mm -hmm. So you can only do that with your own gifts and talents and skills and curiosities and limitations and imagination, right? And um, and so so it's, I mean I think maybe I'm dodging the answer, but I also do think that that if there was another way of doing things, uh, I wouldn't be the person. I wouldn't be on this call with you. Um, we wouldn't have met. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's hard for me to imagine. It's, it's a hard for me to imagine that parallel universe. And B, I don't. I think. I think that parallel universe is all around me in the people that I live with, and the people you live with, and the people we need and know. Like that's that is the parallel universe. All of those people are also people in some ways we could be or mm -hmm. you know possible to be. So. Um, so is there another way of doing it? Um, there's lots of different ways to get into this garden. My friend Juanita Brown, who is one of the founders of the World Cafe Community of Practice, says that what, one of the things we're all doing as dialogue practitioners is we're basically like entering through all of these gates into this sort of interesting garden in the middle. And when we get there and we have conversations with each other, you know, we meet in a place where we can get to share what we've been learning. And it's far beyond methods and it's far beyond techniques and it's, it, and even the stories we tell each other, it's, it's, it's all about like, what are we, what's really happening when we do this work? Mm -hmm. What are participants doing to create those experiences for themselves and, and that kind of stuff? So, um, so there are a million parallel universes, seven billion parallel universes, and they're all happening right now at the same time. And the beauty of it is that I don't have to long for any of them. I can just find uh, another one mm -hmm. and uh, bring that person into my work. So I try and never work alone mm -hmm. um, because... Because in one way, if I'm getting in a really spiritual review, but in one way, I could say that if I want to work with my best self, I better find two or three other people. <laughs> hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. Interesting. Those, those people, and if they're really different from me, those people are probably the best selves that I could never be. So that's cool. Bring them in. That's that's a great answer, and in a way, it's kind of like, you know, if I if I were doling out Zen koans or something like this, I think you would have. <laughs> kind of passed that test there with, with that <laughs> answer. So, so good job. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, 
uh, and kind of related to that, for anyone on the fence about jumping into the kind of work that, that you do, what would you tell them? Well, the fence is not the place to do the work. So uh, jump, you know, jump and fail. Do, do like every artist who gets a chisel. When you, when you, the first time you have a chisel in your hand, uh, you're going to, you're going to carve a really crappy canoe. Uh, it's going to be uneven and tippy and not seaworthy, and, mm-hmm. and you're probably going to end up cutting yourself. And if you can at all costs, try and at least only cut yourself. Don't try and don't be hurting other people while you're learning. But you can't just have a tool that's a really great tool and not use it. So you got to get out there and do it. You've just got to do it. So if you're getting on, if you're on the fence, like ask for help, but jump, you got to jump. And in the jumping, that's where you're going to learn. That's where you're going to discover. That's the way all of us have ever done it. There is no way I can take a person who's been through any of the courses that I teach or anything else and go, you're going to do a great job. It'll be fine. You know, (laughs) that would be unethical for me to say that, (laughs) you know, I would say, I would say, I usually say to people who I've been coaching, good luck and have fun and let me know how it turns out. Right. You know, um, because it'll be as much a surprise to them as it is to me. And, but I think that that's the point that we, we, we have to jump in. You just have to jump in and do it. And, and, and really, really don't wait for sanction. Like do your best, try not to do harm, but jump in and do the work. Um, and that, and you'll get better real fast. Okay. Good. <laughs> good answer. Um, I think that uh, I think you know we've been talking now for for quite some time. It's been a really interesting conversation, um, and I wish it could keep going on. But the the sun actually just set where I'm sitting, and <laughs> I feel like you know we got things to do, dinners to eat, and whatnot. Um, so Chris, thanks for for the for the conversation. Uh, it's welcome. it's been really interesting talking with you about all these all these things and the work that you've been doing um and uh you know if there's any parting thought that you would want to tell somebody who's young and and kind of upcoming into the world and is maybe feeling disillusioned by the by the stifling workplace that they might find themselves within uh what would you say to them I would say um, find a place where you can make a contribution that helps stretch yourself. So we all have to do work at some point that we don't want to do, that's not fulfilling, that's not our thing. But don't let your time get colonized by um, a screen or, um, you know, something that, you know, doesn't, doesn't fill you. Uh, and whatever that thing is that you do, like to the extent that you can do it in a participatory way and the extent you can do it in a way that helps you to learn something, um, you're going to exercise and develop some muscles and tools that our society needs. They need curious people that are willing to try new things and work with others. And I don't know what's coming in the world. I mean, I've got a couple of kids and I think like one of my daughters is a jazz musician. She's training as a jazz musician and I couldn't be happier for that mm-hmm. because her raw material, she may not make a huge living as a jazz musician. She might, I don't know. But the skills she's learning as an improviser and a mm-hmm. collaborator and uh, are, I'm like, I can't, I couldn't be more grateful. I couldn't be more happy 
that mm-hmm. she is preparing herself to live in the world as a jazz musician because uh, she's got that. And you can do that. Anybody can do that. Just be curious, participate, host other people, and co-create stuff. Those are the four, four practices of the art of hosting. If you're not doing that in your regular job, do it somewhere else. Join uh, join us, uh, Vancouver Whitecaps supporters group, and help make art. I mean, get out and be part of a protest movement. Um, work at a food bank. Do something like that. Just sit with your family and include them in decisions you're making. Uh, or find ways to do it in your job. Find ways in those little tiny spaces mm-hmm. to be curious about what another human being is up to and what they have to offer. Uh, try and confront in yourself places in your daily life where you're not, where you don't know what the answer is. And, and get curious about who might know that. And it might be somebody you're working with, and it could be somebody on Twitter, and it could be, you know, but practice curiosity and 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 uh, uh, participating with other people and creating a little space like the one you created for us in the last hour and a half here um, and co-creating something. And just do that. Just do that. And when the time is right, you'll know when to use those skills. Amen. Yes. <laughs> I totally... <laughs> I totally am with you on that. That's that's great advice. It's kind of it reminds me of uh, other things I've heard in the past too from uh, from previous cool. guests I've had about kind of creating a leadership practice off the side of your desk and mm-hmm. and engaging in this uh, absolutely necessary work. I think and and you're totally right. It is going to be the stuff that uh, fundamentally may save the world is people having the skill set to improvise and to deal with yeah. emergent problems and all of this kind of stuff and, and to work together with people, especially when you don't agree. I mean, that, yeah. that's going to be, that's going to be huge. Uh, well, and we I can all see it coming. Gonna, uh, yeah. And I don't, I don't know how we're going to survive as a species, but I do know that if we do, it will be because we learned how to do that. Yeah, totally. <clears throat> so I, I don't think, uh, yeah, I think that's our option. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a great way to end it. And I didn't have to ask the, you know, future oriented question because we pretty much did it right there. Um, so thanks a lot, Chris. And, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to connect in person one day. I think we're in the same hood. I'm in Victoria, you're on Bowen Island. So maybe it'll happen once. Not too far away. Yeah. (laughs) Not too far. Um, but, uh, have a good one and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, you bet. Take care. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Chris Corrigan works with organizations seeking to improve their work, communities seeking to improve their future, and people looking to improve their lives. He holds and cares for process, the ways in which we work together to encourage people to make their best possible contributions. If you would like to work with Chris or check out the amazing resources that he has on his blog, go to chriscorrigan.com. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. 
finally, if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together Review newsletter, where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperative behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com.